1958, there was an international piano competition held, the first what would become a semi-annual competition called the Tchaikovsky Piano Competition in Moscow. 1958, the Soviets established that to praise the patron saint of Russian music to a degree, and Tchaikovsky, you know, the 1812 overture, you know, dun, 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 anyway. So it was really to showcase the incredibly outstanding superlative musical accomplishments of Russian pianists. It was kind of a, aha, we're the top of the world, we have the best, others can compete, but we're going to win. Well, much to their chagrin, there is a 23-year-old lanky young man from, born and raised in Shreveport, Louisiana, who started taking piano lessons at the age of three. And he performed with such incredible artistry that they couldn't deny him the competition award. And this, here he is playing. Uh, shortly after, he won the, the, the first ever Tchaikovsky Award. His name, Van Cliburn, who just died about two weeks ago at the age of 78, I think it was. But he was 23. Came back to the U.S. He was on the cover of Time magazine. He's the only musician ever to receive a ticker tape parade down the streets of New York. He became internationally famous he was known for his modesty, his gentleness, his gracious spirit. But there's a man who's written several books about Tchaikovsky and this competition. And in, in the aftermath of his death, this is what he wrote. Van Cliburn readily admitted that he did not like to practice. And he became a slave to his celebrity. Some advisors, including the conductor Kirill Korskovan, who was his mentor, with whom he had achieved such heights at the competition and with his concerto recordings. He was the first person to sell one million records. That's, those are big things you put on a thing. Records, one million records of classical music. First person ever at the age of 23. It's amazing. Uh, he, he, this, his, his mentor warned that he should curtail his appearances to study, practice, and learn new repertoire. But this wasn't in the cards. As the years passed, the critics found that his sound, described by fellow Juilliard classmate Janine Dowis, as so natural that it seemed to, quote, come from the birds and the bees and the trees in the air, close quote, had begun to lose its luster. And his interpretations, some of their artfulness, his eccentricities on the public stage, Clyburn could veer toward affected grandiosity or oversaturated sentimentality, now seemed to capture more attention than the playing. Starting in 1975, he began to think about withdrawing from the concert scene. Three years later, he did so, and the resumption of his career after a 12-year break turned out to be half-hearted. He even limited the number of engagements by demanding outlandish fees. And I read that and I thought, you know, an incredibly gifted man, but, but when you read that, he, he, he just lost his focus. He lost his passion. He lost his focus. He lost his passion to a degree. See, that's what we're dealing with in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2 is this clarion call. Peter says, but you're a chosen people, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people of God, now you're the people of God. And then 
the first part of the book, he says, I, I, I write to you as elect exiles. And then he gives three statements that, that tell us how to, how to fuel our passions. He says, you're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You understand that God worked in your heart and you come to him as Abba Father. He worked in your heart by the grace of God. And he says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We have received the Holy Spirit and we ask for more of the grace of the Holy Spirit to exalt Christ and to empower us and to open the Word of God to our understanding and to give us application to our heart as He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Come, Holy Spirit. And then, then the third part of this beginning is what we'll look at this morning. And he says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. This is an incredible Trinitarian statement. What, what the Father plans, the Holy Spirit empowers, and the Son receives as our gratitude and worship. The foreknowledge of God the Father the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. In other words, God has called us to walk in obedience, brothers and sisters. And as we walk and as we deal with issues and sin and barriers, we continually run back to the cross and we've had the sprinkling of blood you stand hard by the cross. This passage begins with the electing love of God, and it ends with the glory of the cross. A companion passage would be 1 John chapter 2, and this statement, listen. Verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but... Thank God for, inter for conjunctions, huh? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And how is he the righteous? Verse 2, he is the propitiation, the covering. He consumed the judgment that should have fallen upon us. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John says, you know, I'm writing this to you to call you to a high standard of obedience. You're God's people. But as you struggle with the ongoing battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's never ending. It's never ending. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the righteous one. And he's the propitiation for our sin. He covered our sins on the cross. He consumed the judgment that should have fallen upon us. He is our shelter. He is our refuge. This is who we are. for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. 
You're called to obedience, and in the everydayness of life, when you hit a wall, when you struggle, you go straight to the cross. That's what I think he's saying here. This is a tight rope to walk. I think I've got some. Yeah. That's the gospel. That's religion. Okay? Got to get it right. So over here on this side, Christ paid for my sin upon the cross. Therefore, I live with joy, gratitude, and repentance. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Religion or irreligion is I work hard, I obey, therefore, I'm loved. Kind of, sort of, because of the cross is somewhere, some, maybe somewhere. That's not the Christian faith. That's not salvation. That is not the gospel. Big difference. Get it. Behold the glory of the cross. Behold the sprinkling of his blood. Many commentators feel that this refers to a little passage in Leviticus 14, where if you have a skin disease and you're healed of the skin disease, you take two birds to the priest, one is set free, one is sacrificed, and you're sprinkled seven times with the shed blood of the animal, signifying the oncoming or the forthcoming work of Christ on the cross, all that did. So, so sprinkling with his blood. He's writing to Jewish people who readily understood his word picture. I'm saved by the work of Christ, therefore, I live with joy and gratitude and repentance as compared to, man, I work real hard, labor hard, I'm a good guy, I fast twice a week, I give my money to the poor, remember, in Luke, I'm a good guy, therefore I'm loved. One's the gospel, one is works, one is glorious, one is damnable. I, there's a quote in the bulletin from a, little, a book that's become very famous by a guy named Richard Lovelace, written in 1979, and he says this, boy, if this is true, boy, it makes you want to weep, just weep. He says, only a fraction, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Only a fraction, he says. Think about that. <clears throat> Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day -day existence, they rely on their own sanctification or works to be made right with God instead of the work of Christ, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform, you are accepted only in Christ. Looking outward in faith and claiming the whole alien righteousness. That's the term Luther used, means that I'm saved not by my works, but what happened outside of me on the cross. Relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing growth in Christ as faith is active in love and gratitude. What he's saying is that, is that beholding the glory of Christ 
produces love and joy and gratitude and worship. Beholding the mercy of Jesus poured into my life produces passion and a, a, a spirit of just doing it. You know? And that, that is what Peter's saying here, is that, is, that, is that you're foreknown according to the knowledge of God, the Father. You're elect exiles because he, foreknew, he, he is God. You're sanctified, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The end result is for obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. Quote the bulletin, a guy named Wayne Grudem, that I really love Wayne Grudem, he says, Peter reminds the early church that their future includes continual sprinkling with the blood of Christ. That is, continued restoration of fellowship with God and his people through the sacrificial blood of Christ figuratively sprinkled over them. A continual reminder to God that their sins are forgiven and they are welcome into the presence of God and among his people. Behold the gospel that begins with the outreaching love of Abba Father and is focused on the work of Jesus on the cross that results in gratitude and praise. That gives passion. Just, you know this. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know this. I mean, if you've been a believer very long, you know this. And if you're not a believer, man, think this. May God bring it to your home, to your heart. I'm saved by grace through faith. It's, it's not my own doings, the gift of God. And, and then the response is gratitude. I'm his workmanship. I'm created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in, in advance or beforehand for me to do. I was reading this. This is a letter from a guy named John Calvin to an official, a cardinal named Saladetto. And Calvin, this is written in 1539, I think Calvin's, that would make him 30, 30, 33. Wow, okay. This one, so, so, so the cardinal, the Roman Catholic cardinal, has said, you know, your, your teaching, the teaching of the Reformation is from the pit of hell because it leads to loose living. It leads to a type of disregard for holiness. You must realize that you, you, in conjunction with Christ, earn your salvation, basically. Now, now, we would say that is from the pit of hell. Okay. But Calvin writes, they have a very ironic but, but really pointed exchange. This is what Calvin says. I'm just read two paragraphs, but listen, it's written for it's 1539, so it doesn't use no, some of our words. 
like dude. Listen to this. Whenever. This first sentence just makes me sit and Whenever the knowledge of justification by faith is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. Period. How's that for an opening statement? Wow. When you, when you forget the cross only, the glory of Christ is extinguished. The gospel's overthrown. The church is destroyed. And the hope of salvation is no more. Have a good day. Then he goes on and says this. But to answer your question, whenever true, therefore, we see the righteousness of faith through Christ. We maintain that to be a gift from God, gratuitous. And wherever Christ is, there too is a spirit of holiness who regenerates the soul to newness of life. On the contrary, Cardinal, where zeal for integrity and holiness is not in vigor, there neither is the Spirit of Christ nor Christ Himself. And wherever Christ is not, there's no righteousness, there's no faith, for faith cannot apprehend Christ for righteousness without a spirit of sanctification or holiness. He said when, when, when the Holy Spirit comes, you have a holy people. So your, your argument is fallacious. It comes as we get the gospel of grace. Now, here's the question I ask. Am I a repenting man? Because it's what Peter, I mean, you know, Peter says here, for, for obedience to the truth and sprinkling with his blood. I think it's why we're called to obedience. But, but as we hit walls, do we run to the cross? Do we repent? Do we, do we accept to accept as normal that which is biblically abnormal. Does sin break my heart the way it breaks God's heart? Do I grieve over it? See, a sign of our salvation, we're always running back to the cross. We had a missions conference a couple of weeks ago. The speaker was outstanding, missiological thinker. I talked to him about our long-range commitment to missions and what we want to do and that we want to, he says, you know, as you walk with people, he said, I encourage you to have several things lined up with them so you can fully support what they're doing and list, listed three things, but one, one of them is, was understanding salvation by grace. And understanding the perseverance of the saints. I'll unpack perseverance. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, he says, there are large pockets of the church all over the world. And he says, there's pressure on missionaries to do this. And they go to a place and they, 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 they say something, give some type of Bible story. And they say, do you understand who this Jesus is? And they said, yes, we do. And they say, man, you're saved. He says that they may be, but they, they just count all types of hands and noses. And, and, and he says, but, but without understanding that, 
there are signs that accompany saving faith. You know, there, there are signs that we're saved for obedience to the truth. It's not just some type of, he says, you've got to be very careful. I, 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 that just was in, in my mind. Am I repenting and running back? And, and then I, th- I thought about this man named Soren Kierkegaard who died in 1855, the age of 42, a Danish theologian. And I thought about how Kierkegaard raised in this country where they had a state religion daddy and granddaddy pastors and as he grew older he he lamented the lack of passion for Christ he says I see scores and scores and scores of people who go to church and who know the theories and who talk about the Oxford confession of faith but where's the vibrant faith and and so he he lamented what he called passionless Christianity And, and many people historically look at Kierkegaard and say aha he became the first true existentialist and he departed from confessional Christianity. That's not true. If you read his works. But what is true is he said, church, wake up. It's not, it's not just right beliefs. It's, do we desire to be obedient? Do we glory in the cross? Do, do we run to Christ? Then I thought about this past Monday night. We had a wonderful lecture on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He died at the age of 39, 1945, put to death by the Nazis just weeks before Germany surrendered. Bonhoeffer, a pastor, and Bonhoeffer, late in his life, spoke strongly about a religionless Christianity and how some people have turned. I even heard this in seminary from some professors that weren't that conservative. He said, yeah, Bonhoeffer departed from the faith, and yet when you read his writings, he did not. What he was saying is, I, uh, he said, said in, in, the, in the German church, the vast majority capitulated to Nazism. They wrapped their Bibles in a Nazi flag. In fact, I was reading this week a book about Winston Churchill, 1942, and on, on, on going, the, the German state said, if you have a Christmas tree, and very few people could because of, there wasn't any fuel in Germany, but the, if you have a Christmas tree, you do not put a star on top, you put a swastika on top. They came in the church, and there was an altar up front, the Lord's table altar, and they very early, very early, they took the cross off of it and put on the table a swastika. And Hitler was very clear in his addresses and in his writings that the Christian faith had made the German people and their Nordic superiority, their Teutonic superiority, a weak and vacillating people. He hated the Christian faith. And so so Bonhoeffer said, church, where where is the church of the resurrected, reigning, victorious Christ? And so he he, he spoke strongly out against a, um, and for a religionless Christianity. He meant a Christianity of, of, of depth. And so when I look at this, I, I just I ask myself for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood. I ask myself, am I repenting? This little verse, 2 Corinthians, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets. Whereas, Worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces a repentance. And when I, when I sin, 
do I quickly run to the cross and get rid, get, just say, God, cleanse me, take it? Godly grief produces a repentance, leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me explain that to you, a little diagram. So the stick figure is you and me. We hit a wall, the wall of sin, the wall of, of, of we, disobedience. And we have two options, kind of, sort of. Godly grief says, I have sinned against a holy God. I am wrong. I run to the cross. So you pursue Christ and or in the context of biblical community. You surround yourself with people who are going forward in the name of Christ. There's another option. It's called worldly grief or worldly sorrow. It's you hit a wall and you, it's self-justification. Self-justification goes something like this. You know, I, yeah, that, that was wrong, but boy, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not near as bad as fill in the blank. Or I, have you, how many times have you heard this? If you're alive very long, you hear this. Well, I, I, it may be wrong for you, but it's right for me. I, I know the Bible says I shouldn't do this, but it's right for me. They claim to be a believer when they say that. I know it's wrong to be unfaithful to your spouse, but boy, I, feel, I just feel so alive. I, I know it's wrong to be self-seeking and, and carnal and to spend everything on myself and to be arrogant, but you know what? That's just who I am. Self-justification. And so self-justification leads to two things, isolation or cronyism. First, cronyism. Cronyism is finding a group of people that kind of agree with you. If you're a white supremacist, you find the local chapter of the Aryan Supremacist League or the KKK. If you're a black supremacist, you join the Black Panthers. You find people that agree with you in your sin. You, you can find them out there. If you want to be unfaithful and uncaring, just go to the local bar and hang out with the guys there who just are justifying themselves. You can find it. Or isolation. Isolation. Isolation says, don't, don't bother me with your middle class right wing or left wing or whatever mores. I'm calling the shots. I said before, Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way, is the theme song of hell. My way. Isolation. And so the question is, am I repenting? Am I repenting? I'm saved for obedience to Jesus. You know, I belong to Jesus. What do I do when I hit this wall? Do I repent and seek out the Lord and community, or do I pull back? See, I need the mirror of God's word. I need the mirror of brothers and sisters in the faith who speak truth to me. I don't need this. No. <laughs> kind of see what you want to see type stuff, you know. I, uh, I'm going to tell you something that's going to shock you. So you may want to get out the smelling salts. 
I asked myself this question, came up with the same answer my wife did. My wife is very objective when it comes to me, and that's very unfortunate. <laughs> so I asked her yesterday, I said, uh, how many minutes a day do I spend in personal grooming? And she laughs. I said, yeah. She said, five to seven. I said, that's what I thought. 10 to 11 if you throw in a shower. See, I went to Citadel. And when you go to Citadel, you learn to take a shower in three minutes because you're always moving. Sometimes you don't even get wet when you get in the shower, but you, you take a shower. <laughs> now, one reason I don't spend more time personal grooming, I know you find it hard to believe, is that, <laughs> is that I have seen the coming attraction and it's not pretty. I've seen the trailer to this movie, and I want to avoid that. In fact, I like to brush my teeth in the dark. <laughs> See, that's, that's the way a lot of people look at their lives. You see, I, I need brothers and sisters, and I need the Word of God. I need, I need to understand I'm, I'm saved by the electing love of God, I am empowered by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus and continual sprinkling by his blood. And so I need to repent. I need to be in community. Very interesting story. There is a world baseball jamboree tournament going on involving multiple nations all over the world, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Canada, U.S., Taiwan, China, um, the Netherlands has a strong baseball following, uh, all these teams. But, so the, the baseball people said, we want to tap into the Spanish sports hysteria. Spain, a country of about 50 million people. That, that would be good for baseball. The problem is baseball has never been played in Spain. They wanted to have Spain in the tournament. So they, they allowed Spain or somebody to enter a team, that's a Spanish flag, from Spain. There are 28 guys in the team. One was born in Spain. One. To qualify for the Spanish team, you had to uh, either be married to somebody from Spain. You had, seriously, you had to be be a, a grandchild or a nephew or a great-grandchild of somebody that formerly lived in Spain. And I think, seriously, I think if your parents at one time worked in Spain as ex expatriates, you could qualify. So this newspaper reporter went into the Spanish baseball team and interviewed them. And he asked such far-reaching questions as, what's the name of your prime minister? Uh, two or three knew. The guy from Spain knew. What's your capital? Barcelona? Eh. Madrid. About half New Madrid. I mean, this is the Spanish baseball team. Who is Michael Cervantes and what did he write? Or what did he do? And if you're a fourth grader in Spain, you know these things. Cervantes wrote what? Don Quixote. Don Quixote. Um, who is Goya? the most famous Spanish painter. I mean, that they didn't know was, uh, nobody knew. And I, I read that, I just started laughing, and I, I came to this, I just thought, 
you know, when, when you go to the Olympics or you go, to, you, you have these people walk in with their flags and they're proud. You know, if you're on the Canada baseball team, you're, man, you love ice hockey and you love the Rockies of Canada and you love, I don't know what they love, but that, uh, you're Canada, you know, whatever Canadians like and really, really like, you know, uh, you like Celine Dion. Isn't she from Canada, Celine Dion? She's Canadian, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm stretching here. I don't know what. But, but, or if you're, from, if you're from Taiwan, you, you're a brave nation that stood against tremendous odds. You're, you're proud of your heritage. You, so here comes the Spanish team. Are you proud of Spain? Uh, the theme song of, of this team, remember the Three Dog Night? I've never been to Spain, but I kind of like the music. That's their theme song. <laughs> remember? That's their theme. By the way, I was, just, I was looking that song up. And just, just an aside, we'll get back and we'll close the third stanza of that song, I've forgotten it, is I've never been to heaven, but I've been where? To Oklahoma. <laughs> to Oklahoma, not Arizona. What does it matter? And I thought, you know, that's not very encouraging. I've been to Oklahoma. <laughs> and if that's a foretaste of heaven, then I'm, I just praise, praise God it's not, okay? But anyway, their theme song, I've never been to Spain. Listen, it is, it is difficult to recommend that which we've never experienced. These guys can't really represent Spain. They've never experienced it. Are you experiencing the ongoing grace of Jesus? Are you experiencing the mercy poured in your life when you don't deserve it every day of your life? See, that's why he closes this little beginning with grace and peace be multiplied to you. See, so when you experience the reality of the eternal love of God the Father and the empowering work of the Spirit and the glory of the cross, and you taste it, see, grace and peace are multiplied, they're lavishly poured into your life. And you live with passion, passion. You live as called out people. Let's pray. Thank you for this day. Thank you that you've called us to be obedient children. Thank you that that is your standard. Thank you that that is who we are to be. And I thank you for the ongoing sprinkling of the blood of Jesus on our lives. Lord, when we hit, when we hit walls of sin... Do not let us flee to self-justification. Let us flee to the cross and repent. Repent and go hard for you, I pray. And I pray that as these things are in our lives, as your elect exiles, I pray that grace and peace will be lavished, poured into our lives. In Jesus' name.